Hello, and welcome to the July edition of the Waterlog Podcast. My name is Dan Ginolfi. And my name is Howard Marlowe. And thanks again for tuning in. Thanks very much to Coastal News Today and the American Shoreline Podcast Network for hosting us. Let's get started. I'd like to do that. What's first on the list, Dan? So we've got appropriations on the list, WERDA. Uh, we'll talk briefly about NFIP, uh, a completion and termination memo from ASA James. Uh, I'm going to talk about how local governments urgently need aid now. And then once again, since we're located here in D.C., um, and we touched briefly on some of the protests happening in our city on our last podcast, we're also going to follow up, have a small discussion today right here at the end. So let's go ahead and get started. For appropriations, uh, the House version of the core spending bill is supposed to be marked up on July 7th, ahead of a full committee markup on the 10th. Legislators are aiming to have all 12 uh, spending bills marked up over the course of the first two weeks of July with a goal of passing all of them, uh, all of the spending bills before the August recess. The Senate Appropriations Committees are ready to move on their bills and the Senate uh, Chairman of the Appropriations Committee, Richard Shelby, says that all of his 12 bills are ready to go. However, Republicans fear that Democrats' amendments will highlight uh, some of the problems with the Trump's administration's uh, response to the pandemic. So over on the water side, Water Resource Development Act, um, the, our Senate sources tell us that their water version may come up for a vote uh, during July. Now here's an insider tip. Uh, if you want to know when it's coming up and actually what is coming up, then you need to look at the Senate uh, report. And if you look right now, this is a strange situation because most bills that come out of committee have a report. This bill didn't. As soon as you see a committee report uh, released for the public, it will mean that the bill is ready to go to the floor. So be on the lookout for it. Uh, that's what we do for our clients. To keep no, it's a little, a little bit strange because we were looking for it for a while and it just never popped up. Never popped up, but I talked to a source on the committee staff and they said that they were working on it, expected a release any moment. Um, what was holding it up was Congressional Budget Office has to decide how much it is, quote, going to cost, even though it costs not a cent. Um, but uh, nevertheless, there are budget rules, and so therefore it has to be um, reported out with a cost attached to it. Um, meanwhile, the Senate has been patiently waiting for uh, the House version of WERDA. Uh, but in the stealth move, we've seen the House has taken a surface transportation bill that carries the number HR2 and has turned it into a 2,093-page infrastructure plan that includes some provisions for coastal and inland navigation. So normally, WERDA only authorizes core funding rather than appropriating it. So I'm not sure that what HR2 is doing is normally, it fits into the WERDA category, Dan. But on the other hand, what we do have in this, what they've dubbed the Moving Forward Act, as opposed to the Moving America Backward Act, uh, contains a provision that appropriates, actually appropriates $10 billion to the core. Uh, it gets that money from money that is not already spoken for in fiscal 20. Would it make more sense to say make available or is it, is it truly appropriate? Well, it's uh, authorizing the appropriations, I guess you could say, 
but it's really designed to send a message that we want to spend, we Congress, want to spend every cent that's in the Harbor Maintenance Trust Fund. Um, and that has been a problem for a variety of reasons not, that we can't get into, don't have time for today. But I think that's what that $10 billion is for. And I think it's just sending a message saying, heck, if you got it, uh, we're saying here in this bill that we're going to appropriate it. The reason I don't think it goes much further than that is I don't know where this giant package, HR2, goes. It'll be on the House floor uh, this week. Uh, it's being debated as we talk right now. It'll be voted on, and uh, by the time people are listening to this podcast, it will be um, approved by the House. I, there are so many provisions in there for so many things in that 2,000-plus page bill that I don't think it moves anywhere in the Senate, so I'm not sure whether it means anything at all. Uh, you know... There are, oh, there are some core projects that are authorized or reauthorized. Chesapeake Bay Program, for example, is reauthorized. A couple others in that bill. So those may be picked up by word of legislation eventually. And as soon as that stuff comes out, we'll be, we'll be on it? And Absolutely. It'll be out to our subscribers and be a subject of perhaps our next, next uh, podcast if everything moves okay. I'm excited for this year's Word of. There's a lot of good provisions that we've discussed previously on podcasts and in Waterlog, um, and I'm just eager to see what else comes up. Now, the National Flood Insurance Program. New study came out. It's been getting a lot of attention. A study from uh, First Street Foundation uh, reported that more than 21.8 million U.S. properties are at risk of flooding. Now, some of these properties um, may have uh, federal flood insurance. Uh, some may not. But of the 21.1 million at risk, 14.6 million properties are identified as having substantial risk, meaning they have at least a 26%, 26% chance of flooding at least once over the next 30 years. Now, nearly 6 million of these properties may have underestimated or unidentified risk, as uh, FEMA has only 8.7 million properties map mapped in a special flood hazard area. Um, at the same time, the Government Account Accountability Office, uh, the investigative arm of Congress, released a, port a report this month coming to three noteworthy conclusions. The NFIP owes the U.S. Treasury $20.5 billion, despite the fact that an additional $16 billion of debt was canceled by Congress a few years ago. Number two, as long as Congress declines to raise premium rates, the, pro the program can only go for, uh, further and further into debt. And number three, the $2.3 billion spent on damage mitigation grants hasn't lowered the federal government's exposure to risk from uh, repetitive flooding for non-mitigated properties. These are stark facts that we just are unwilling to do anything about. The we includes both individuals, local communities, who are actually trying to do some. Some local communities are actually trying to do something, but also the federal government. Uh, back, it seems like a decade ago now, Congress passed um, flood insurance reform. And then a couple of years later, took it all back uh, because they were afraid of the response. Premium rates are going to have to go up. There's no way to deal with the flood insurance program other than to raise premium rates and to also make policy reforms within that that will result in encouraging people to be at least aware of the fact 
that they're in hazard zones and to do something about it. We need to provide more at the federal level uh, to provide assistance to mitigating, but you know, mitigating, mitigating includes raising properties, moving properties, and I know, Dan, you have some mixed feelings about the issue of raising properties as to how effective that is, certainly over a long period of time. So, um, but all the, the things that are going right now uh, seem to indicate that we're going to continue to have floods disrupting lives, costing lives, disrupting the economy, all of that. Yeah, uh, you know, it, on your point, I think that there is, you know, what we consider already baked into the cake, sea level rise that's going to happen. And I think that there are some areas that we you looked at what's already baked into the cake, they're already underwater 30, 40 years from now. And uh, it's going to be a really tough decision for whoever gets to make that final decision of who goes underwater or who doesn't, whether it's the federal government bailing people out or whether it's, you know, local communities putting up their own money to save themselves from going underwater. But I do think there is going to be a threshold of savable or, and not savable in the, in the coming years that we're going to have to deal with. Yes, and in the fight for, against sea level rise and, and to try to adapt to climate change, there are going to be winners and losers. Absolutely. And, and, and that's the hard thing to realize. And is it, and this gets to inequality that I know we want to talk about later in the podcast, but certainly inequality will come into some of that. Some communities will be more able to afford change or more able to afford it for parts of their communities than they will for other parts. And as we, we see this is, uh, as we get to inequality, we'll see how the differences in race, uh, you know, when you look at this under a, a magnifying glass, you see that a lot of the lower income places happen to yeah. also have higher you know, percentages of, of um, diversity, um, but particularly non-white communities, um, exactly. which are not getting an equal amount of uh, federal response, either money or what other sort of grant programs that are available. Um, but we'll get into, get into that in a little bit. Um, Next thing I want to uh, cover today is the uh, the, the ASA James. Uh, was, he, on March 23rd, Secretary James issued an internal memo titled Completion and Termination Guidance for Corps of Engineers Studies. And the reason we bring this up is, is it potentially threatens projects that do not qualify as uh, what's considered an active study. Uh, an active study is a study that has received a federal allocation, uh, has a non-federal uh, non sponsor committed to funding their share, they have an identified federal interest. They have reasonable alternatives constructible for a federal project. In other words, there's a, you know, a feasible project that could be undertaken. And um, the project is proceeding according to a vertical team-aligned scope, schedule, and budget. Now, that determination is ultimately made by the district commander as to whether or not a project qualifies as an active study. Uh, but here's the important point. Any study initiated prior to June 10th, 2014, will be terminated if it does not qualify as an active study, or if no federal funds have been obligated in the past five years, or if the non-federal sponsor does not provide contributed funds to complete the study. And it does say complete the study, so that may need further guidance. Uh, you may not be able to just contribute funds to continue the study, but must be completed according to the language that's there now. And any study initiated after June 10th, 2014, must be completed within three years as uh, per the course three by three guidance. Um, however, the, um, the ASA may extend the time frame for a maximum of 10 years. 
but if the study is not completed within that time frame, it will be determined immediately. And just one final note, if a non-federal sponsor decides to pursue a new feasibility study in the future, uh, essentially leaving behind the project they have and uh, going for a new one, it will compete as a new start, which we know are, are limited to about five or six new starts. Um, as con you know, Congress has placed a, a yeah, limit I, on that. I think one of the, um, th there's positives and there's negatives about this. Obviously, if studies have languished uh, for various reasons, uh, they ought to be terminated. But a lot of the reasons that at least we've experienced for languishing is lack of federal funds. And so you're penalized if you can't get the folks at the Office of Management and Budget to agree to continue funding your study. They may start. Nothing guarantees that when OMB something to start has approved something to start, that they're going to continue it. So, you know, they start, they stop. And you get two-thirds of the way along, and they stop. And now you're stuck. You're in the, you have a time clock. You keep on trying. You do everything you can. So it says, okay, you ought to put up the money to finish it. Well, we signed an agreement. We, the federal government, signed a cost-sharing agreement that said that we were going to be in this with you, subject to appropriations on our end, but we were going to be in there. We didn't give you that out on your end. We gave you no outs. You had to pay up as long as we paid up. So, you know, I know the intention is good. I just find it very objectionable that the federal government doesn't realize its level of responsibility in studies not being completed. Well, this always becomes a bigger issue when you also have a client who this is impacted by. Yes. So. <laughs> yes, so, so we can speak with some passion. Um, but uh, I think I can see a positive and negative on both sides. So, you know, um, We'll see how this proceeds, and uh, I, I think, like you said, it's it's a good thing for any projects that have just continued to kind of idle. You know, maybe it's it's time to terminate those projects. But if they're not eating up appropriations, what's the problem of having the study there? Yeah. Now, there are also two ends of getting the federal government to put money into uh, studies. The core, in essence, to put money into studies. I blame it on OMB, but there, there's not enough money to fund all of the studies and the construction things that are out there. Whose fault is it? That's another issue because we don't do budgeting like uh, people who do city and, uh, and county budgeting. We don't do it that way on the federal level. We just sort of throw things out there and see what gets funded. So communities who are more active in trying to get the funding, more effective at trying to get that funding, have a better chance of getting those scarce federal dollars. So I think there is a responsibility on the non-federal interest to make to make sure that that money is coming at the federal end, and not to just blame uh, either the, anybody from the congressional delegation to uh, the gods uh, uh, for water resources, whatever they may be. That you know they're not favoring you. They you can do things to get OMB to respond. I just think that that's kind of a difficult. Right, and, yeah. I, and I think that's a good a good segue into our next topic of, you know, how local governments need to speak up, yes, about about their needs. Um, if anyone's interested in, or has any questions about ASA, uh, the ASA James memo, uh, feel free to reach out um, to either of us. Uh, but again, moving on, Howard, in a recent blog post, you talked about how during this pandemic, local governments um, are paying significantly increased costs um, to fight the virus combined with cutting budgets due to sharply decreased revenues. Um, 
Yeah, this is uh, something that hits everybody from coastal to inland to far up in the mountains. As long as you're a community, you are losing, uh, your, your budget has uh, been reduced. A lot of budgets uh, for local governments are June 1st or July 1st to June 30th. And so I know in my town here in suburban Maryland, uh, we've already cut our budgets uh, in anticipation of reduced revenues next year. We get our revenues from property taxes. And um, that's also revenue sharing on the part of the state of Maryland. Um, so every community has sources of revenue and property tax is one of them. Uh, it could be uh, tourist taxes. It could be uh, who's using your parking meters. It, who's parking overtime on K Street out here today? It's a smile at Dan. Yeah, it might the, be me in a few yeah. minutes. <laughs> so it's a source of revenue, the speed cameras, all of that. Well, if you have less people out using the uh, roads, using the parking meters, and then for anybody who relies on tourism of any kind, definitely is going to be down. And so your budgets are going to be down. Local governments got shafted in the big CARES Act, uh, two points, whatever it was, trillion dollar CARES Act, because only if they were 500,000 or population or higher did they count for. And I'd like know. to know how many communities have more than 500,000, because that's, that's a pretty big number. I mean, you look at Washington, D.C. with 705,000 people. I mean, we just make it, and then we got shafted actually, because we are in a state. And right. We got, but um, you know, just yeah. just to put out the you know the fact that all of Washington D.C. is just slightly over that number. Exactly, it's a large number, and so all of the all the communities have got to realize that July is going to be the month when Congress puts up or shuts up on additional funding to help a variety of interests in this country that need assistance. And local governments need to speak up. Uh, we sent out a note uh, to a whole list of people, but, but all of the national associations, counties, mayors, league of cities, state legislatures, all of those groups have put out alerts. Please contract your members of Congress. Do it today. And I know when I put out a note to some people uh, earlier this week, they're already on vacation and not coming back to next week. So if you hear that uh, when you come back on July 6th or July 9th, whatever it is, go and go on the sites for the House and the Senate. Find out how to easily send a, uh, a message to your representatives and tell them that not only that you need money, but why you need money. Uh, they need to hear it because if, it, if you don't speak up, it's not going to happen. So do it now. Plain and simple. So let's speak up a little bit about uh, the, some of the disparities that we're seeing uh, in regards to disaster loans in black communities. Now, one of our sources uh, pointed out some data here. Uh, let's go back to 2016, where the federal, uh, was it FEMA, uh, Small Business Administration, I'm sorry, um, approved 26% of the disaster loans in Jacksonville and pursued and uh, approved 84% of the total loans in Ponte Vedra Beach. Ponte Vedra Beach is 94% white. The Jacksonville area is 96% black. So a huge disparity there. Um, now, I mean, there's 
I can run through a bunch of other facts, but let's just let's just look at it plain and simple. There are huge disparities here in in how we're going to recover. I mean, white communities have recovered far more thoroughly than black communities to a, a number of natural disasters. Exactly. It's, it's it's just a matter of who's getting money. You know, we talked about the uh, the protests that were just starting uh, during our last podcast, um, and that was racial injustice. Well, part of that is economic equality. One of the promises of our country to people is equality. All men are created equal. I understand that the definition uh, of equality at the time that we were created was all white men were created equal. But at the same time, it didn't say all white men. It said all men are created equal, which we now define to include clearly women. And uh, that's what people are concerned about in terms of the protests, which are still going on. And I think will show some results. But I think we have to realize that in dealing with uh, disaster loans that we're talking about or mitigation loans or any of those things, that there's going to be economic inequality unless we find a way to build it out. It's built in, so we have to find a way to build it out. And that is something that we need to focus on because whole parts of communities, whole parts of regions are going to find in uh, sea level rise and uh, climate change that they are going to be on the short end of the stick and that they're going to have to go fish. Probably without a rod, reel, or anything on the end of that uh, string. So I, I think that uh, it's something as a nation we have to try to uh, alleviate in whatever way we can uh, because it's going to be a constant striving throughout our lives through the lives of our children and grandchildren to get that equality that was promised in our Constitution and that people have a right to expect and to go out on the street and protest about. So hopefully things improve. And I think uh, all that we can do is be part of the improvement. I, I think it's great to see articles like the one I'm reading here that, you know, let's just put it in general terms. Um, it says in zip codes where a majority of People are black. The Small Business Administration approved 28% of the applications in zip codes where at least 90% of the population is white. The Small Business Administration approved 52% of the ap applications. It's nearly double. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, data is important. Data uh, it's is very important to have have data available. Um, I think there's a lot of. Uh, well, I'll just leave it at that. It's good. To, it's good to have data because there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of conversation, and I think there need to be more facts. Yeah, and, and there's an article in this morning's paper. It's about the virus and a database that Johns Hopkins uh, has been keeping, and it points out that yes, there's figures in there about how many people are getting the virus, how many people are dying, and where they are, and it tries to break it down a lot. But then you have to look at the data and you have to look underneath the top figures to the kind of stuff that you're talking about. Who is benefiting from you know these loans and who is not benefiting? Why is that the case? Is it the fact that uh, just race alone? Is there some other factor? You just need to be able to look underneath that and to be able to fund efforts that provide that data 
then allow people to argue over things that are facts as opposed to you know whatever they might be exactly. believing on that day <laughs> exactly you know whatever they heard on fox news cnn or whatever it might be that day if you have some facts then you can argue um i think um no doubt there's hype, there's hype in the media, and, I, and that's why yeah. I find that just the facts to be so important is to really just kind of ground truth things. But then you find facts and you have to kind of fact yeah. check those facts because, you know, like we see in Italy where there's an extremely high death rate, you also see they have really high, you know, high levels of disease, a lot of high risk populations, older people. So you wonder, you know, is there something special about Italy? You know, yeah, it's because they are higher risk, you know, and so. And then with differences in society, why is it that I can watch Korean baseball? If I wanted to be up in the morning at 3 a.m., I could watch it live. I've been able to do that for the last month or six weeks. Um, not a single problem. Not a single player has gotten um, COVID. Not a single staff member or anybody. Now, there are no, no fans, but they're talking about bringing a small number of fans in next week. Why is it that can happen there, but it didn't happen here? We have to learn from that, not blame ourselves. We have to learn from it. We're just constantly, you know, pointing figures. Oh, it's China's fault for this or whatever. No, it, it's our responsibility to figure out. And part of it's a cultural difference. You know, they're not, they're not uh, complaining about the fact that uh, everybody on that field is wearing masks except the players, the umpires, the coaches. They're all wearing masks. They're not doing high fives. They're doing their version of it. You know, you know they're, they're doing their best to respect their fellow man and to enjoy playing baseball. Wish we could do that here. I hope we will soon. <laughs> Thanks very much for tuning in. Uh, until, next, until next month. Yeah. Signing off. Take care now, folks. Stay safe. Bye.